0: Bose is the presenting partner of Beyond the Grid. That's because Bose Quiet Comfort 352 goes beyond what you would expect from a pair of headphones. Just flip the switch to experience the industry-leading active noise reduction feature, and all distractions of the world around you fade away, allowing you to focus fully on what matters to you.
1: Hi, I'm Johnny Herbert, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid.
0: Welcome along again to Beyond the Grid, your weekly fix of F1 conversation. I'm Tom Clarkson and joining me this time is one of racing's toughest nuts. Someone who still suffers pain on a daily basis as a result of the injuries he sustained in a crash 30 years ago. But he doesn't complain and he never has. The man I'm talking about is Johnny Herbert, A Formula 3000 accident at Brands Hatch in 1988 defined his career as a driver. Everything he did before the crash pointed to him being a future F1 world champion everything after it left us wondering just what might have been. Despite suffering horrific injuries, this fighter still carved himself a long career in F1, and he famously won three Grand Prix in the 90s, two for Benetton and one for Stewart. But you sense there could have been a lot more, because as a young driver, he was held in the very highest regard. Nowadays, Johnny's still involved in F1 through his TV punditry with Sky, and he's still the same cheeky chappy with a quip never far away. That he's got such a positive outlook is a testament to his character, for his story is both harrowing and inspirational, and he tells it like it is. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Johnny, thanks for joining us on Beyond the Grid. Pleasure. Um, We're chatting at Suzuka. Now, how much... Would you still like to be out there here at one of the greatest racetracks on earth? Would love it. Um, I mean, seriously, I feel still like to be out there? Yeah,
1: because I think it, it sort of stays in your, in your blood. You never get it out of your veins. And if ever an opportunity comes up, I, I'm not going to go chasing for it. But I, if someone asks, you know, do you want to have a go? Absolutely. Would love to have an idea, of especially these modern F1 cars, just to know exactly what they are nowadays.
0: Well, what bit of that? would be the most interesting to you is it is it horsepower is it brakes is it grip
1: i think it's the whole thing because i think the the grip level is is obviously very high at the moment the brakes i would imagine are probably quite similar but with the extra downforce maybe that's going to be sort of be slightly different although if i go back to the very humble beginnings of my very first test in the old turbo cars of course the wings were massive and you had a huge amount of drag so actually the braking was very, very powerful then, but it was all draggy. And, of course, nowadays in a modern car, there's hardly any drag uh, whatsoever. And then, of course, then you've got the power units. That would be probably the most interesting thing to see exactly how they, how they drive from from the whole acceleration point to the seamless gearboxes that they've got. But, of course, then put that all together with the aerodynamics and the braking power, it, I, 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 I would love someone to ask me to have a go so someone please ask me (laughs) answers on a postcard, please
0: (laughs) now look it's once a racer always a racer isn't it that's kind of what you're saying and do you think the job is the same for the drivers of today as it was in your day
1: yeah um i think that the rawness of it hasn't changed you know it's still down to the driver getting the best out of the car they've got more tools available um, I probably had a mobile phone. That was all I, all I had. And of course now with the simulators and with the, the ability of the engineers to have absolutely every single part of the car instantly on their screen and then by the time you've got in, they know exactly what's just happened like, like you do. So to, to, to have that technology out there it, it advances it because obviously the ability for the engineers to get the very, very best from the car has probably only slightly changed insofar that it is them who actually set the car up. They know how the fastest setup is, and probably, as my guess, you have to adapt to that. Where When I was was racing, you made the car adapt to you. So it's probably slightly... The other way around. So the onus has gone away from the driver. Uh, only because of the. We used to help that setup. We made that setup work for us. And it, when you had those two cars, they were always different. There was a slightly different row bar or a slightly different spring because we have slightly different senses. But of course, in the modern world, the quickest way to get a Formula One car A to B is all done in, you know, in the simulator, for example. So the setups are very, very different and you have to adapt. To that. Is that a skill? Yeah, it's still a skill to be able to do that. And there are, and you do still hear it, there are slight changes that a particular driver, Lewis, for example, will always always ask for. So it hasn't changed to a degree that the driver has no input. I think he just has less input than it than it used to be.
0: So the good guys are still the good They're guys? are still the
1: good guys and still get the best from it, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. And do you think this, this mob take safety for granted you've got the halo you've got huge advances in safety since your day yeah but again it's, it's does that affect your attitude to how you drive as well well it
1: does yes because if you do suzuka uh, of old um you were always aware that if you went too too fast through a corner you knew you was going to be on that curb but you knew if you just popped a wheel off of that curb you were on the grass and once you get on the grass of course the car is going to get taken off and the barrier was only a couple of meters away so you always knew there was going to be um, um, a loss of either track time or a loss of that qualifying time or a loss of possible points in the race but of course nowadays there is no thought process about well if I go wide it doesn't matter. Anymore because they go off on the on the the runoff areas. Uh, there's not so many here in Suzuka, but generally the Term new the new is. tracks. Yeah, it's still there, but it's it's less so than the, the new tracks. <clears throat> and that's that's a, a a mental approach that's that has changed, and it's not their fault because when they've come into Formula One in the modern days, and like you said about the the way the safety is that's something that they've come through from probably Formula Three to Formula, you know, F two or or even, you know, GP two or whatever it may have been, to get themselves in Formula One. So that, that safety element is is around them in the cockpit itself. It was around us, but there was a then an edge outside that cockpit that was always ready to to bite you. And that was a skill, being able to get on the very, very edge. I always always try and explain like Nigel Mansell, you know, his ability to get right on the edge, sometimes overstep the mark. But he was such a ballsy driver when it came down to sort of driving on that very, very edge. And that's a skill. You've got to have that ability to be on the edge rather than having an edge that actually spreads another 50 meters. That's not an edge. Right.
0: There is no edge. There is no edge. It's a yeah. very
1: different mental
0: but, 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 approach. But what about the attitude that you can't hurt yourself? Do you think they're but that's a that's fl- part of it, yeah. You're, are they more aggressive with each other on the racetrack now than you could be in your day?
1: I, I, I see, and actually there was a, a little shot I saw earlier uh, today, which was uh, me being overtaken, I think, by uh, Jacques Villeneuve at the chicane. And I was on the inside. He went round the outside. And then I was trying to keep him tight for the left-hander. But I realised I've lost the corner. So I sort of backed out of it and then slotted on behind him. Well, you see nowadays that they sort of go round the outside of a corner, sometimes up the inside, when actually yeah. there is no real gap there because of I think one is that safety element is there sometimes I think what has changed in racing which is a which is a big thing we have rules about how a Formula One driver the best drivers in the world overtake each other and I sort of think well that's not what it's about it's the best drivers being able to work out how it is have I got this corner is it mine is it not mine where now they all think it is theirs, even if they get a little bit of their wing up the side of side of the the rear tire of the of the other guy. You say, well that's not it shouldn't be decided by rules, it should be decided by skill. And I think that's why sometimes we have a few more incidents on the track, because each of them thinks, Well, I'm ahead, well I'm up the side, well I'm not going to give way, well I'm up I'm up the inside, so I'm not going to give way either. And I think that's why we see a few more arguably sort of sillier sillier incidents in many
0: respects because johnny when we talk about safety um it is actually 30 years isn't it since your horrible accident at Brands hatch yeah. um now that in, that was because of a scuffle, scuffle with was it Greg Greg Voyte? Voyte, Yeah. you know if you'd had that accident today i know you hit a uh, the, the the strut of a bridge yeah, it was a very un, yeah. unfortunate place to do it but, yeah. but do you think you would have walked away from that accident today I think the way
1: that the technology of monocoques has come on, yeah. Because it was high modulus, the the way that they constructed the the monocoque itself. So they had a lot of glue to make it stiff. But the problem is when you hit something with a lot of glue, it's like fiberglass or glass, it shatters. And that was why the whole front of the car literally came off. Same with Martin Donnelly, actually, when he had his crash in Horeth, it was just because it was high modulus. It's not like that now. The percentage of glue is way less than what it used to be and they're they're able to wrap it in a certain way that absorbs all the energy that comes through the chassis so yes I think I would have walked away from it I was a bit unlucky in the angle I went in but that's sort of part of of racing and I think it was something I I accepted I always had it in a very small box in the back of my mind that something could happen to me but you never it was never in the in your forefront in you know, the front of your mind, because that would, a, would not enable you to go flat out through a rouge, for example.
0: Johnny, there'll be some people listening to this who don't know what happened. I know you've had to know. Oh, it's true. Enough, a long time ago, but, yes. But, but could yeah. you just talk us through... So there'd been a... It was Formula 3000. Yeah. Um, Frank Williams was in the garage, wasn't he? he? Was waiting for me, yeah. There'd been a restart isn't it? The first start was red Yeah, flagged. first start. So, so got t- then
1: what happened next? Well, the, the restart is, is one of those things my wife still but sort of has a go and go at me about <laughs> it. The brand's hatch. The pole position's always in a bit of a dip. And although I started the first start, got away, gone in the lead, got a 12-second advantage, I think, over Martin Donnelly, who had just joined the team. So restart, as you said. So I part the car with my back end sort of up the the slant, thinking that actually as it slides down, I'll be straight and just sort of carry on towards paddock. But of course, once you start to get a slide with a tiny bit of wheel spin, it will just carry on sliding down into the bottom of the bowl effectively. So I didn't get particularly good drive uh, and I was third going into paddock, but I wasn't worried because it was a two-part race. I had a 12 second advantage. So that's all I was needing to sort of watch. And then as we went up to Druids, I think it was, it was side by side a little bit with Gregor Voetet, we bang wheels already went down through Graham Hill through Surtees and then I was looking in my mirror and I could see Greg I just got a little bit more drive than me I didn't I don't remember making any error but he just had a bit more drive and being Brands is quite narrow I thought well if I park it in the middle of the track he can't go left and he can't go right because it wasn't really wide enough so thinking everything was okay but still watching what was happening and I remember seeing me pull to the left hand side just as you're going towards the bridge that goes from Druids over into the Grand Prix circuit. And I could see he just kept coming and coming and coming. I didn't move. He kept coming and coming. And then I thought, well, he can't get through because there isn't enough room. I know, I can see that there's not enough room for a car, but he must have gone right on to the edge and if not, a little bit onto the grass. And then he touched my rear uh, left, which didn't drift the car, slide the car in any way. It just shot it in a in an amazing amount of speed completely left not 90 degree but it must have hit you hard no glance just a glance didn't it that's what i mean it wasn't a drift and a push and a british touring car (laughs) type sort of uh touch that you get from jason plato most of the time <laughs> sorry jason <laughs> um no it was just a tiny tiny glance but because of that speed it just sort of slightly rotated the car and of course you get into this rotation that your the, the way the diff will sort of work in that scenario it will always keep going left and you might try and respond with a little bit of steering but the diff is so powerful that it will always push it because of that right diff will always try and catch up so it just carried on going left and then where that bridge is going over the over the circuit the barrier in normal racetrack and any racetrack nowadays just goes down the straight and carries on until you get to Hawthorne and around Hawthorne but where the sort of the earth bank was holding the bridge up the but the armco went around so it went sliding a sort of 20 degrees around to the right then it sort of goes straight for about sort of six meters and then it goes back but where it was sticking out, I, had, I hit it head-on, which was where the girder that holds up the actual armco itself, which was bent 90 degrees, I think it was. The energy was just enormous. And as we discussed a little bit with the monocoques, it just ripped, basically, the front of the car off. So it was from about my knees, just behind my knees, that the whole thing had disappeared.
0: So as it spun across... So that first impact... Took off the front of the car. But what state of the legs in at that point?
1: It's very doing... But you don't you actually feel... But, but. You don't, I think they were OK, because I think that was the way it was just drawn off when I was sort of spinning. But of course, when it went across the other side, it went head on again into the barrel of the other side. But of course, my feet were hanging out the, or my legs were hanging out the front of the Monaco. So that's where they. I think they took the brunt of the, the impact itself, which sort of nearly sort of took my left foot off, that was sort of hanging off on a little bit of skin. And then the right one, my heel is actually round the side, my toe got dislocated and sort of was sort of pointing at a funny angle. And my toes is it I can only explain it. It does look a little bit like a monkey's foot. <laughs> it's it doesn't really bend very much. So mono water skiing, I'm very good at that. On that right, that right foot. So it got that got more of a beating and a pounding where the other one actually got literally sort of decapitated.
0: No, sort of ripped off. Whatever yeah. that's, whatever that's called. Were you conscious throughout? Yeah. And so, was I, I, in that sort of situation. What are you thinking?
1: Well, initially, when, when Gregor hit me and I re- realised the car was sort of yawing to the left-hand side, in my head I was going, oh, my... But I only got I sort of out because it just happened so quick. I think it was about 161 mile an hour impact, something like that. So you don't have a chance to react. But I can remember the first impact. I can remember all the energy in my, my head moving forward I don't really, am- I remember this, the feel of the spinning around because my eyes are closed at this time. Then I remember another massive sort of head-on impact uh, and all the sort of energy moving and my body moving. Then it spins around and stops. And then I remember opening my eyes and then I the first thing I noticed was I could see the trees through my monocoque. So as soon as I saw that, I remember sort of putting my head back and going, kind of knock me out, knock me out, knock me out. Because I just realised, I thought I'd lost my, my legs from my knee down. Because I couldn't see my legs I could only see my top on my knees so my first thoughts were
0: legs are gone and how much pain are you in at this point nothing so the body is an amazing thing
1: amazing powerful powerful thing that it can just take away all that normal pain that came sort of a couple of days later away it's amazing how it does that so there was no nothing that was giving me any ideas of actually no. you've still got your legs on and your your foot is actually still on the left-hand side but it's obviously it's losing a lot of blood and it's badly damaged no I had no no clue what was going on except when a marshal turned up I remember him putting his head into the cockpit Are you okay then he went to the front of the car and then he was all he, he was almost sort of sort of gagging sick at the front of it then I realised it's probably not not a still a good thing, but still thinking, actually, I've lost my legs at that point. So it was only until I woke up in hospital, crikey, six or seven hours later that I saw my legs were up and they were bandaged, covered in blood, but bandaged up. So then I realised I still have my feet. Guys,
0: so, uh, I mean, Johnny, do you, do you still... When you tell that story now, does it still send a, a shudder down your spine? Because it's certainly doing that to me, listening to it. Or have you just totally come to terms with everything that happened.
1: Well I come to terms with it. It was a bloody good crash. <laughs> <laughs> and I I look at it that there was there was something I could have part different as I said on the on the grid itself for the for the
0: second restart. So you start beating yourself up about uh, moments like that. Think if I hadn't done that then I would I have made a done better done start. Yeah and sure. That.
1: And I think it would have been, you know, would my career been different? I believe it would have been but we we'll never know on that front. But yeah, it's just part and parcel of sport there are certain things that you do sometimes that are, are are an error sometimes it's it's sort of you get a small um issue from doing that small mistake or it can be as in motorsport can be a big a big crash like i had you know if you're doing golf you know you have a bad slice or a bad hook you know you're yeah, just in, yeah, you're, you're, yeah well, it's me as well <laughs> <laughs> but that's just you'll be in the trees or you'll be in the bushes and you have to drop a ball that's a a total different scenario than if you make either a mistake as a driver or someone else gets involved because it's actually the the outcome is way way worse you know
0: we'll come on to the recuperation in a minute mm. but but you and Foitec had a bit of form that season because wasn't it race two where you'd had a coming together longer, yeah um, w- why we did you have an issue with him? Did he have an issue with you or was it just hard racing and you were good friends? Well,
1: well no no everything I knew of him prior to that season in uh, in 88 was he was always involved. He was always involved with crashes anyway. So he had a reputation of being one to try and avoid, you know. And I even do that Accident we had in Valalonga. I was third. I think Olivier Gruyard was leading at that time. Gregor was second. I was. I moved out the hairpin to pass him. He then tried to cut me off. But as I sort of tried to sort of move away from him, he touched me, which then sent me off into the the barrier. Sounds on, like on a, the almost inside. a mirror image of what happened at Sort break. of, in a way, yes. Again, it was him making this move, which. He shouldn't have done it. was an over-aggressive move. And it's partly like what we were discussing earlier on. Sometimes you sort of go, whoa, I've lost this. And I thought I was good at trying, you know, working that out when I was racing from Formula 4 all the way up even to Formula 1. And there are certain ones that don't. They just fight to the very end. And sometimes they hurt other people by doing that. You know, did anybody talk about his dangerous driving? No. In those days, it was... Sadly, sort of something that was just part and parcel, parcel of the racing.
0: What did he say to you after, after the brand's
1: hatch? Uh, I didn't see him. I don't know. I know his father was saying it was nothing to do with Gregor and it wasn't Gregor's fault and everything else. He tried to take the blame off him. I did see him in Rio because he was there when I did my first Grand Prix and stupidly, and I didn't realise it was him. I took him because it was I don't know there was about eight of us in there and I just took him, put my hand out and I shook his hand. I wish I hadn't done that. i never ever spoken to you mm-hmm. know, to him since that. that so he really never spoke to him to. since Brian? No, absolutely not, no. Because he was totally to blame. He was totally at fault. And, and he, never he broke his arm. He got away with it. You know, he was at Birmingham the next race. Uh, and I was watching it in hospital. No, and I feel, you know, that someone like that who'd had this, I don't know, and even with me, I said, well, I had it before in Longa. had this sort of driving style that affected others. And it wasn't just me because the race was stopped. This is where the thing is really sort of more annoying. The race was stopped at Brands Hatch because he put Roberto Moreno into the barriers. And that's why it was stopped. It was Gregor again who did that. And then of course the restart, and then he does it to me. So, So that's three times I can remember in that very short sort of period that I had in Formula 3000, plus the others I know that had happened the years before.
0: So, I'm sorry to sort of drag you through that's, that's this. A <laughs> No problem, a bit not good. a problem. But, Johnny, so your left foot is hanging off, your, your right foot is in all sorts of trouble as well. Yeah. At, when you're in hospital, were you thinking that's career over, or what was the thought process over the next weeks?
1: Um, that, he, that I was that close to get in my, my dream. And as you said, Frank was there, wanted to talk to me after the race. Didn't happen, obviously. I had done a test with Lotus the, the week before and impressed the team was faster and quicker than PK. Enzo Ferrari wanted to, to meet me as well. So I never met mm-hmm. Enzo and he died in 89. I never met Frank, obviously because of the accident. I had um, Peter War, who was, you know, very involved then them uh, at Lotus as well, interested. Uh, Benetton anyway, but I already had an option uh, with Benetton anyway. So I had so many people wanting to have a part of me, um, and they and I always always explain it as like a big ball. The ball started at karting. It was quite a nice size, and I balanced on top. Won the Formula 4 Festival. Won the Formula Three Championship. Tested the Benetton at Brands Hatch and went quicker than uh, Thierry Boutsen. So it came again. Formula Three Thousand won the first race. Then Enzo Ferrari and Frank Williams. My ball was was so, so big and I always in my head and I still remember thinking I can be anybody, anywhere, any car in any condition. That was the positivity that I had. But As soon as the accident happened at Brands, it was like someone popped it and I never got those thought processes ever again. That all all totally disappeared. But did I think, that's it? No. I thought, well, I tell you what, I'm going to dig deep and I'm going to try to get back in. I can do this. I can actually... I can get back in a Formula One car, and that helped me eventually do it. I think if I hadn't had that process, it never would have happened because all the doctors were sort of saying, "Well, you, you might walk again, but you're probably going to have a stick. You're never going to drive again for sure." So if you listen to that, that's negativity straight away. So it was for me: think positive, give it your best shot. If it
0: doesn't happen, you tried your best. If it does, it'll be all worth it. And nearest and dearest you you at the time, wife Becky and, and mum and dad and things, yep. did they sort of let on any emotions at the time?
1: No, support, support. 100%, yeah. 100% uh, I mean, support. Did, did, I think it was my did the
0: wife ever say, Johnny, no. isn't this a message to stop doing this? No, or anything?
1: no. she was very supportive. My parents were, were supportive but in a different way. I think they, I think in some ways, I always think my dad felt guilty that it happened to me because it was, you know, him sort of helping me out in carting in the early days and to get me in that position that it injured you know injured his son so i think he always felt guilty about that and i know i've i've had discussions sometimes even recently with my wife that if my feet get because they're quite they get a bit painful sort of nowadays and i'd feel like if i get to a point where they're they're too painful well why have them on i'd rather not sit in a wheelchair i'd rather sort of take them off and put some carbon fibre things on. And I remember doing that. I remember my dad getting very upset when I said that. And I couldn't quite compute that because I'm sort of thinking, well, I'll be better off by doing it. It's It's interesting because I just find that, for me, it's something that I I would do, I think, because I think it would only benefit me. So it's, it's quite amazing how in my head... That's okay, but of course, to other people, even my wife, it's like, no,
0: no, 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 that's that's not that's not right. Can you understand where Dad was coming? Now that you're a dad, got two lovely girls, can you imagine where he's coming from? If if you'd encourage the girls, let's say you encourage one well, of they the girls to horse go they racing. do horses,
1: they do horses, which is dangerous. But enough. is that encouraged by
0: you, or, or because if there was something that you well, it was really never
1: encouraged by my parents. It was something I wanted to do, but they supported me oh, okay. to do it. So for whatever reason, I think my dad sort of felt that was. Yeah. You know, he was partly to blame because he sort of, he, he, got, he backed me up. Um, my daughters do sort of equestrian stuff, which is quite dangerous or can be dangerous as well. I'd feel probably bad if something happened to them, for sure. But I can understand it from a sporting aspect. And I always felt we dr- we're driving. Although it was, you know, it was a lot, lot uh, more dangerous back in those days. It was a thrill to me to be on that edge and knowing that that barrier was only a couple of meters away and knowing that it might jump out and bite me sometimes. But but that was a
0: thrill I got with that driving. Now, that's slightly different. But not post-accident. You didn't think that post-accident. Yeah. Did you still get a thrill out of the danger post-accident? Yeah, absolutely. Because I always thought before the accident it would never happen to me.
1: Unfortunately, it happened to me. And then I always thought, well, it won't happen to me again. Lightning it could have done, but I knew that's twice. that little thing I said I put in the back of my head. I knew it could, but that was if, if I thought that, I'd stop because you can't drive those beasts of machines on the edge thinking, oh, I've got to back off through this corner. Because as soon as you do that, all the other guys behind are just going to go barreling past you and you'd be thrown, you know, kicked out of the sport because you wouldn't be sort of, I don't know, putting yourself in that position where you're going to be sacrificing speed for yourself but also for the for the team as well. So nothing changed on that, that mental side a little bit later on in my career because I thought I felt that they just I, my feel was not as it needed to be they did sort of actually get a bit worse towards the end.
0: So tell me if I'm wrong but I did a bit of research before <laughs> speaking to you. Is it true John that 6 weeks I'm just looking at my notes now yeah. 6 weeks after that crash Peter Collins Phoned you to say, We are taking up the option on you now. Yeah, I was
1: still in a wheelchair, yeah. I was still bandaged
0: up, yeah. I hadn't walked.
1: Why at that did he point. do that? Tell me that. Why? I know you. We all, all know was, how good you were before. Because he, he was a smart man. <laughs> <laughs> I think but, it was just the belief he had in me, weirdly. Because he used to phone me up in hospital and he said, How are they? Are they moving? Because obviously it was very early on. You know, is it because my left one took a long time to move? It only moves sort of 15% of its, you know, normal motion anyway now. And as soon as I remember him phoning up once, um, you know, is it, and I said, yeah, it's moving, it's moving. It was moving a millimetre. It was a millimetre. But I said, yes, it started to move and everything else. But he had this. And again, if it wasn't for Peter, you know, twice, you know, I would not have had a Korean in Formula 1. No one else would have touched me. I was damaged goods, you know. I was, you know, coming back... Into the paddock, you know. Even when I go to Rio, I was on sticks, and I wasn't really walking. I was hobbling around. I was in pain, and everybody could see that. But Peter
0: had this unbelievable belief that because he'd you know, seen I, how good you were pre-show. Uh, sure, and yeah. he thought even if you only get back to ninety percent of where yes, you were, that's still better so. than I most think people. That was still that. So, yeah.
1: So I think that's you'd have to ask him, but I think that would be that would probably be exactly what it was. He had this amazing belief in me, which allowed me to be in Rio. I've, before you go on, I had two, two options, which is part of what you said about when I was in hospital, did I sort of want to stop? I had the, the, the two options, which was either try and do a bit of rehab, go to Japan for two or three years, then come back to the paddock and sort of go, hey, here I am. Or it was to do what I did, was to work very, very hard, get to Rio, and then start that sort of career at that point. And I'm glad I did it that way around, because I honestly believe if I'd gone away, for one, two, three years, come back, you know, mm. in the best condition I could be. I don't think anybody would have touched me again. It's like, where's he been? Well, last time I saw him, he was smashed up to pieces, and things would have moved on as they always do in Formula One. So, me doing Rio and finishing fourth is something that people still still remember. And I think that that day and that decision made my career. So, I think that honest, one race, that one race, and that decision of going to Rio. Because if I'd said no, I'm going to go away and said do that rehab. I don't think I would have had a career. No one would have touched me.
0: But I mean, that Rio race, you were what two and a half seconds behind Alain Prost in second place. Yes. Why? I, th- I thought it was closer. But yes. <laughs> Why were you so so good in Rio? What
1: do you mean? It was, it was all way.
0: natural. <laughs> natural <laughs> because, speed. Because the you track, were, you were still. As you said, on crutches. Yeah. You. How much feel did well, you I have? Well, I wasn't allowed
1: crutches, actually, because Flavio. this is Flavio Briatori coming to Formula One. So he into just Formula moved into Benetton. And I got a phone call, I think, the week before we left to go to Rio. And I was told by, not typically by, by Flavio, by Secretary, not to take my sticks. Don't Why? take. Why? Because he thought it looked bad. An F1 driver walking in around the paddock with crutches. So he said, don't, don't take your sticks. And for me, it was even worse. But maybe that was his little game plan, probably down the line to get me
0: out. Because he was already thinking that far ahead. If, sure, I, if yeah. Johnny looks yeah. really lame here. Yeah,
1: yeah. So we did that. So we did the test. So we did the test, which was always a month before and did a day okay, did the second day. And I think they decided, right, we're doing a race distance, just came out of the blue. That was never in the sort of original plan. And the mechanics from I remember mainly had betted that I wouldn't finish. I wouldn't get to the end of the race. So it was in the team weirdly enough that they didn't expect me to get to the end. So they filled it up and they all just went off for lunch and coffee and stuff like that. I I don't, I don't even remember having a pit bull to be perfectly honest, but I did, I think, I think I did 99.9% before the the car ran out of fuel of, of the race and that was a damn important test because that completely scuppered what Flavio obviously was trying to do. Because I had another meeting just before, uh, the week before, actually when we arrived in Rio, which was me, Luciano Benetton, Peter Collins, and uh, Flavio. And it was just, you know, can you do this? Can you do this? This was Flavio, Uh, can you? I said, yeah, I can do it. I proved it, I proved it in the test. I can do a a race distance. And I am aware that uh, Emanuele Pirro was at Rome airport wait for the call as well so there was a plan to get you out to get me out yeah because I was damaged goods but because of Peter was there obviously saying no 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 and then I did the test that sort of scuffled all that so they accepted it did the race finished fourth Luciana Benetton wasn't there Flavia wasn't there and Nanini wasn't there they'd all gone off before I got back to the to the hospitality
0: so straight away no one um, was there to congratulate not, you
1: no just Peter and my crew, that was it. They'd already gone, so straight away there was this horrible sort of feeling of, well, they're not, they're not for you. But I just finished fourth in my first Grand Prix, so for them, that sort of destroyed their whole plan, I guess, that they had. But they never stayed around to say thanks, which was not a nice, nice thing. But did I care? No, because I Come proved the impressive, you're point. only human. That yeah, but stay- I proved the point. It's like on due, and I, I, I proved a point you know and that was the making of, of my career and it made me I think my crash made me strong in other ways it made me sort of have less emotions I suppose in some some way I'm quite a, am quite shy. when I was younger I was very 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 shy I wouldn't even ask the, the ice cream man for an ice cream just in case he said no stupid but that's how shy I was so m- karting and motorsport sort of brought me up but the accident did make me a lot tougher on the outside because it's because you're dealing with pain as well how much pain i think it's just you're dealing with everything the worldly things the positives and the negatives and the positive for me was obviously coming back but of course the negatives are well i'm damaged goods which i was for my whole career i was damaged goods i wasn't normal you imagine someone now who has a cold that's a big deal nowadays just a cold nice sort of chuckle at that so things were just
0: You've been in swimming against the current.
1: Yes, but it made me it made me strong yeah. because of that. Because it just made me invincible. That. Is it invincible? Mm-hmm. No, I had that before the crash. I was never I never felt invincible after that. I can, as I said, I can beat anybody anywhere and anything else. But to try and bounce off that sort of negativity that came early in my career, and I think sometimes that's positive. I always remember Jensen when he was at Benetton and the difficulties he went with. Flavio, in some ways, that's a good thing. So I think it made him stronger.
0: Latterly, I think.
1: It did, it did me. Anyway.
0: So in those early days when you've come back in that, yeah. you know, sort of 89 season, how much pain were you in inside the car? Um,
1: well, I learned one thing in Rio and I can't remember what turn
0: it was. I'm going to do go
1: one, two, three, four, five. I think it's five. And it's basically, it's a hairpin that goes onto the back straight. There's a left-hander that goes into the, to the hairpin. And there was a massive, again, in days when there were bumps on tracks and there was this hole <laughs> that was on in the track. And every time I came out of the pits, used to hit this bump because you could never miss it. It seemed to be the whole width of the track. As soon as it hit it, my, my left foot, which was like that, it was like a, I don't know. Like holding up a big ball, just yes, so, yeah, a great so big ball. It's a very big ball, I don't have a ball, a ball don't the it? left is a, si- a football size. It's not football size, it <laughs> was a slightly deflated football, I suppose. Um, like a melon, something of like a melon, melon size. And my ankles really, really swell up. But when I went through that bump, it used to sort of knock against the monocoque, and I used to scream my head off in the car, and it would sort of ease off. But you'd come around the next lap, hit the bump, it touch the side again, you'd scream again. So I was in a lot of pain. So then I thought, well, how do I get around that? How am I going to get rid of this pain? So I thought, well, I'll give this one, one thing a go. So came through first lap, came up to the bump. I relaxed my, my left foot completely, completely. So it's not really even going to touch the clutch pedal at that time when we had clutch pedals <laughs> on the foot. And when I hit the bump, I just let it sort of do its own thing. So it smacked itself against the side of the monocoque because I just let it go. Screamed to high heaven, but it went over the pain threshold. So I never got the same pain for the rest of my runs or race or whatever it, it, it was. So it was just finding ways of overcoming the pain for one, but over, overcoming you know heel and toe. Everyone sort of heel and toe, you sort of break and you rock your ankle. And could you do you that with your right foot? No, I couldn't rock my ankle because they're they're locked. Both of them left so did and right. you just
0: lock up the rear wheels every time you went no, down no the...
1: I had to find another way of doing it because I used to do the, the brake pedals that basically the brake pedal would go slightly uh, stop slightly before the throttle then I'd roll onto it and then I could do my, my heel and toe but well, I couldn't do that because when the brake pedal stopped sort of like that my ankle didn't move so I couldn't reach the throttle so then I had to adjust the brake that went past the throttle then I could actually do it with my sort of heel I could blip it that way, so I had to find other ways of of doing that. But of course, when you do the brake that goes past the throttles, you could collect the throttle when you're going down. Mm. So it was all things I had to uh, adapt to to be able to do the shifting as we have with, with the stick shift. So there was all things. So the pain thing was enormous, but I had to find a way of overcoming it and going up through the pain threshold. Helped. And then was I there any medication play. you could Yeah, take? lots of Nurofen. It was only Nurofen that I had. I didn't have paracetamol, which I think I was allowed to have at that time. But I didn't realise. So I had lots and lots of uh, Nurofen. So before, I think if i before correct race. before Yeah, and it was stupid why I did it, but it was just in my head. It, it, it well, I'm sure on the Sunday of the race I had 12.
0: You had um, 12?
1: 12, which is stupid because you shouldn't go that extreme and it didn't yeah. do anything anyway so but I, I'm sure it's 12 it's in my head it was 12 I had a lot I do remember that <laughs> <laughs> I do. but, Kids, I, had, but I had to yeah don't don't please don't do that no <laughs> so, But so I had to do all that so there's all that going on you know that when a driver drives all he should be thinking about is driving but I'm thinking about the driving I'm thinking about the pain how am I going to get over the heel and the towing with the gear shift and everything else it was a lot to cope with and that pain sorry that pain that you were talking about i never told my wife until i retired because i didn't want her to sort of worry about about me i couldn't tell peter i couldn't tell anybody else so i had to deal with that as well there was so much i was having to package to control all those different variants things that i had but that's what I wanted. I had the desire to...
0: But that was only that. six months after the crash. Yeah. Um, did the pain get easier mm-hmm. one year, two years, three years later? Or was it always there? It, it
1: moved. And I only say it moved because the left foot that was hurt in Rio, that sort of eased. So the swelling eventually went down. I used to get some infections in 91, 92. I think the last one I had was 91, actually, which was when I came to Nippon here in, J- in Japan after after being moved away from from Benetton so so I still got the infections but the infections I was very lucky because those in fact and what they call them a particular one they can stay with you for the rest of your life but luckily I think I had it with Adrian Reynard in Fuji I think it was, if from remember correctly and we were in the hotel and the, my foot was really really swollen but it also used to point push the foot down well it didn't move very much but it pushed the foot down but because it's an infection it was bloody painful just to put any weight on it and then I remember it used to sort of come up like a little blister on the side of my side of my foot and I remember scratching it away and then it, it burst and it all came through and this was where I had my first blade of grass come out which was about a centimetre long as I like popped, popped his head out and I remember pulling that out and then squeezing, I remember Agent Reynard came in to help me because he used to squeeze my ankle and then all this pussy stuff used to come out so we had to sort of mop it all up so i had that three times i think during that 91 you in nippon and then thankfully that that disappeared so so, so there'd been
0: things like grass in your body yeah, in rubber, your yeah, for,
1: rubber for, come from the heel at the side for, of the for heel three and years. stuff yeah, yeah 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 it was like 91 was the last i think bit of grass i had a, i think i had one piece of rubber come out after that that was it so it's amazing what the body does how it sort of cleanses itself if you want to class it that I'm also way, amazed,
0: so. though, that psychologically you weren't afraid of hurting your feet again. No, but that's that the
1: mentality I think the racing drivers have anyway. You said yeah, that, but, but
0: yeah. I still think it's extraordinary.
1: Yeah. I think some people can't understand, I think a lot of people can't understand so you know, the guys that go around the Isle of Man, for example, knowing, knowing they may not go home. But it's that buzz and thrill that you, you get from, as I said, being on that edge and that was something I continued to have. I still had the challenge. I think, suppose it's challenge as well. The challenge I had before was one thing, and the challenge I had after the accident was something completely different. It was a tougher challenge than the one before, because it was a lot more natural than it was afterwards. It was a bit unnatural in many respects, but the challenge was still still there, and I think that drove me.
0: Did it get easier, the the dawn of semi-automatic gearboxes and things like that? Did that make your job easier because you were relying less... Less on the le- yeah, heel and toeing. Heel wasn't and no, right
1: no sure. Y- yes. Uh, the only thing it probably did, I remember in the latter part, was I still, I, d- I still don't have the full normal strength that anyone else has. I still can't really stand on my toes, for example. My toes don't really bend very much, but I still really can't stand on my toes properly, which you still need for sensitivity when it comes to the throttle and, and, and to the brake. But it's also the brake pressure. I always struggled initially after the accident, and that's no surprise that I couldn't really push on the ball of my foot. Actually, I remember Monaco when I got to Monaco. I actually, did it on my heel because the Monaco's were quite deep. But you've got no feel whatsoever ah, at all. So I'd probably get two corners out of you know twenty corners right, and that doesn't that doesn't do you any good. So I've always struggled on those types of tracks. So later on. I still didn't really have enough strength. And the way the car sort of developed with the semi-boxes and everything else, braking became bigger and bigger. And that's where I probably lost most of my time and sensitivity and stuff. So that's where I probably started to struggle a little bit bit more. Yeah. It was was blatant, was it? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, for me, it was blatant, yeah. Sensitivity, I think, was probably my biggest loss. And I think, because remember when we had the groove tyres, that was bad for me as well, because when it was sort of the bigger, wider, slick cars, there was a lot of mechanical grip. And the mechanical grip, in some ways, is less sensitive, because you could just turn it, it used to grip, you get out the corner, and you just gun it. And it would just sit at the back and accelerate out. And of course, once the grooves came in, it was a longer feed on the throttle. And I couldn't do a longer throttle, because my ankle wouldn't have been able to go flat out down the straight. So it always had to be a sort of standard mm. throttle map that you sort of have or a mechanism as we used to have in the early days so things became worse at the end because so those last not three years pain, with, with, but with mainly from, with from, groove from sen- yeah groove tires and even latterly even with sort of Stuart and jag as far as i was concerned the, the sensitivity was
0: just for whatever reason
1: was was going downhill it and that was a
0: johnny way. herbert thing rather than a car thing.
1: yeah yeah well the the groove era was bad for me. I okay. think it was just latterly when the sensitivity yeah. needed to be just a little bit higher, when the engineering became bigger and bigger and you was almost like V in the corner. I couldn't V it very well because the, the sensitivity just wasn't there from the braking and, and then the pickup of the throttle as well. So I just struggled to get, the, now and again it came right. And it's something, the, there's one race and it still sticks out like a sore thumb where all that sort of positivity of being in the cockpit, feeling all the rubber underneath you to, to the, the grip that you get on the track, to how you fed the brake, the throttle. I never felt that in the whole of that F1 career. Did before the Formula One, in the tests I did in the, in the Benetton and the, the Lotus, for example, in 3000 and Formula Three, I you remember Formula Four breaking right on the very, very edge, stick shifting and feeling you were right on the very, very edge, and there was one race which was Malaysia '99, where I had all that. I wish I knew why, because I don't know why. You still don't know. You've thought I about still it. Still don't know why. And it was just, it was just as it was beforehand. And of course, that was, was Groupies as well. Yeah, and I just got it once. Weird. Once in 161. Once. Yeah. Grand Prix. Yeah. Noise the hell out of me. <laughs> it really does, because it was there. Now, why was it there? So it's, I don't know it's how the mind is, how the brain works to the, I don't, know, I don't know what it was. Horrible. And it was, maybe it was the posit- positivity of the Nürburgring round, I, I don't know. That was
0: the race before,
1: right? Uh, the, that was the race before. So you just won the so European won the Grand Prix for Jackie Stewart. Yes, yeah, so, and then went to Malaysia, and that was, for me, was my best my best race. I finished fourth. But it, was a, it was a strong race, but it finished fourth.
0: Well, look, we, we mentioned race wins there. You won three, a couple in 95, and yep. then, of course, that one with Jackie. Um, which one stands out? Which was your best victory?
1: Well, I'm, I'm very lucky. The first one's always special because it's your home Grand Prix Silverstone. Uh, Monza's nice because obviously the history and that one probably stands out more than the others just because of Flavio. Uh, and of course it was nice Monza and it was nice obviously with, with being with Stewart and their sort of only, only Grand Prix win. You know, Silverstone is the best one. You know that's
0: you know it was. I, I was there. Was I remember a, yeah. the cheers and the. It yeah, was, yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, didn't was,
1: hear them. I didn't hear those. Not like <laughs> Nigel, but I didn't hear. I didn't hear. I didn't hear the cheer. Could see it all waving and raving about. You know, I was fortunate with what happened, obviously with Damon and Michael, but that's that's racing. racing that's yeah. just the way it goes sometimes. Um, but yes, just to be at your home Grand Prix just is something special because everything from Formula Four and Formula Three and, and three thousand as it was, you'd been there, and it's you know it's the home of of motorsport in, in the UK still at the moment and that is a special place to, to do that first one and it was nice with DC and Jean and on the shoulders and obviously with Jean we'd come through sort of Formula 3 and 3000 together, DC a little bit behind that so that was, that was all lovely. Um, and I remember Flavio and Michael coming up to me after after the I must have gone to part fur maybe after the podium can't remember and I remember Flavio and I, it's one thing I wish I hadn't done which he asked for my cap. And your cap? A, yes, and being Mr Nice Johnny, I gave him a bloody cap. Well, why did he want your cap? Why did he? Well, because want he wanted it because it was a race win, so it was something he could put on his shelf or something or other in his little little Flavio museum of some sort. And Michael come up, so that was all very nice. But the one that stands out... Did he ever give you hat- he didn't never gave it to you back? Did no, of course he didn't. No, he right. didn't. No, he no. no, 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 was never ever going to do that anyway, no. No, maybe he didn't think I earned it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> took it away that mm. way. But the biggest one that always stands out is Monza. So Monza, you know, everything that happened in that that race. And we get into the podium and there is that picture of me doing my sort of middle finger, which I don't... I don't um, um, uh, yeah I don't really wish people would, well it was just a, there was just a couple of italians who were down in the crowd because it's always wonderful Monza in the old still good now actually but the old sort of podium you know there was just the sea of fans that come and of course then you get that massive Ferrari flag that they always sort of unravel and sort of put it all across all the fans and there were just two italians who were down they were giving giving me the finger so I just gave the thing about and it comes in this day and age you could not do that at all and I don't expect anyone so no one please <laughs> do that if you ever get on yourselves on the podium but the the Constructors trophy was given to Flavio and I hadn't seen him because our uh, relationship was pretty poor at that point but he took the Constructors uh, trophy and sodded it off <laughs> Never said an absolute word. Never said anything to you. Never after said that, anything. Then. yeah. Never said anything to you. But say I think something. that just shows. What Flavio is all about.
0: So that that middle finger wasn't at Flavio; it was definitely no. Was definitely, at the but when I go- see it, it's <laughs> it's for it's for him. So I was actually going to ask before we got into the whole Flavio chat: yeah. who was more pleased when he won a race, Flavio or Jackie Stewart? <laughs> I, and I think I don't need to answer that. Question. No, exactly. No. But it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, that Flavio in, in didn't want you to race for him in '89. Yeah, made that clear. So so, so how did. did you come up race end up racing for him again in '95? Well, how did that work? When, in 94, Benetton were trying to get
1: mainly the constructors, I think the drivers was obviously something that was going their way with Michael. And Jos was there, Jos Verstappen, was sort of maybe not doing what Flavio wanted. So, obviously, I went to Ligier for Jerez when, sadly, Lotus all went a little bit pear-shaped. I beat Panis, which was was great. And then there was a test at uh, Barcelona for, for, for Ligier, for me. So I turned up and then I went into the Ligier garage and they all looked sort of, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I've come I'm for the test. No, you're, you're testing for Benetton. So no one had said a word before I'd even got out to the test. And I tested for Benetton that day. And then I went to Suzuka. We just need team. to
0: explain for people who don't know. that. So, so Benetton and Ligier were, were owned by the same yeah, people, Tom. Yeah, Tom, Tom was involved
1: with that, but he was involved with Benetton at the same time. But it was more Tom's team. But because of the, the the race had gone so well, they, they were wanting someone, myself, to help them in the constructors, which is why there was
0: that sort of quick changeover. How was Flavio to start with?
1: Uh, Flavio so we, was typical Flavio,
0: even from, on, from the outset. From
1: those two races I did in in ninety four. It was, it was okay. I remember I aquaplaned, crashed on the, in the rail. I think it was in third and then it really threw it down with rain and aquaplaned and, and went off. <clears throat> in Australia. I can't remember what happened in Australia. So anyway, so we sat down, talking about from 1995, that this is a team and it's important that, we, you know, you're part of that and then we can help each other. You know, the constructors, which they hadn't won in '94 is very important for Benetton to able to achieve. And I think you can you can help in that and that, you know, as a team, we can do this together. So I thought, okay, yeah, this sounds okay. We signed the contract. Everything was fine. No, can I no.
0: interrupt you there? Did you sign as a number two? No. Nope.
1: A number one? No, there was no... Two so there was no now. one or two? But, but, but there was no two. <laughs> <laughs> there was never, ever a mention of two. As I said, okay, so that's, that's why I said, it's a team. We're going to work together. So there was this team, team, team thing, and we're going to help, help, help. And then the first t- test I did in uh, HREF was four-day, two-day Michael, two-day me. I did a half a day. So straight so away, the writing was on the wall. Michael had been asking to do extra. I remember Ross coming up to you, know, hasn't finished his programme yet after day two. He needs to just finish it off on day three and then you can get in the car. Hasn't quite finished it off on day three. He just needs the morning and then you can get in the car. So I did half a day. Then we go to to Brazil. Uh, I think the clutch went in the race. Qualified fourth, if I remember correctly. Went to Argentina. And as we we're walking away on the, the extra free practice that we had because it was a new circuit i was i don't know I was a thousandth quicker than michael walking back to the to the higher car michael sort of says uh, johnny yeah i've just you know, i've been thinking you know there are things that i do when i'm driving in the car and i'm sure there's things you what you do when you're in the car that we don't you know we don't want to show each other and i said well i said that's you know we've got the data that tells us all the all the stories with that yeah but there's things that you know maybe you don't want me to see and there's things that i don't want you to see and i said well i said I said that's you know it's just the way it is at the moment it's not not problem no I haven't got a problem with it at all fastest man will be the fastest man and then went back to the hotel didn't really think about it at all Um, came back in the morning had a meeting um, uh, the engineers meeting and before we started Ross said oh yeah just before we start um, Johnny Michaels had a word with Flavio he doesn't want you to see his data and um, flavio's sort of said yeah that's that's fine he could see sti- sti- he could still see mine but i couldn't see his so again there was this typical flavio change of heart or just this situation again where he never approached me never asked me about it never shared it with me got someone else to do his dirty work and that just made i remember psychologically i didn't Deal with it very well because i knew it was going to be tough because i knew it was going to be michael i'd had my sort of relationship and understanding how sort of flavio did his thing i remember my wife came along because we knew it was going to be tough i didn't expect it to happen on the second race and i didn't take it very well because i just felt on my own i didn't feel i had anybody who
0: was on my side and just a, a word on michael obviously he was playing every game you know every every game he could. As you expect. As you'd expect, as you say, uh, that's almost a driver's job. But was he as good as you'd expected him to be, just in terms of his pace, his what what stood out about Michael Schumacher when he was in the car?
1: Yeah, it was the raw pace. It was that that sort of I don't I don't I don't mean this in a bad way, that arrogant belief that he had. Because there was a certain persona the way he sort of portrayed it, and to me it was sort of a confidence, confident uh, arrogance that he had, but in the, in the car, you have to say, it was pretty dynamite what he was able to achieve from it. There are things that have sort of happened, you know, from, from what happened with Damon in '94 to Jacques in Jerez, the parking in Monaco, there were, there's an element of him that he would do anything to win. And that's why he was successful. Is it my way? No. I think I'm a bit more, and I like hearing it. I like hearing it from Lewis where he says, I want to I win by sh- being the fastest man on the track. And I think that's sort of how I went about my racing, and just proving and even to myself, challenging myself to just keep on pushing the limits. You know, but Michael, I, I can't take away anything about his raw pace because it was pretty mighty and it's one of those things i think as he grew from his first race at jordan and it's the belief that he had i always feel i remember it it was sort of taken away after after what happened to brands but i can almost feel exactly what he 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 had in his head and had in his fingers and toes and that ability to just apply it because sometimes you know i remember the spain about 96 it was awesome in the rain. awesome brain yeah the car wasn't particularly good either but he was just absolutely brilliant so you know he was always able to do what the the greats are always able to do is dig deep and grab a grab a, a pole position or a race win from Sometimes a situation that you wouldn't have expected it. And he was able to do that like an Ayrton was, like Damon did, to be perfectly honest, in his championship winning year. Remember here in Suzuka doing his best, <laughs> as he says, his best lap ever. So Michael had that ability to do that as well. So, but he also was very, very good and good on him in many respects of sapping all the energy from one side of the garage and filling his, his own with that healthy air.
0: So, Johnny, looking back on it all, God, we could talk. We, I could talk to you all day. I'm just loving hearing it. Hear it. We've, we've got, you sport, we've got you to do sports cars. <laughs> I'm doing this but Johnny, looking back on it all, um, what is your proudest achievement in Formula One? What are you proudest of?
1: <laughs> getting to Rio. I think getting to that very first
0: race that was so important
1: for my... Probably for my, for my, for my head, but also, but mainly for my career, because that pain that I went through, cause we never really discussed that sort of going to Felkirk with Tony Mattis, who was, used to look after Nigel and um, Kevin Rosberg a little bit into his clinic and working there and walking up the mountains on the sort of the lower side of the Austrian Alps up and down, up and down every day and the biggest pain I've ever had in my, my entire life. But it was something that I knew I had to do, and I knew if I pushed myself, I've, there was that chance that it was, it was going to happen for me. I was already aware of it, but the chance of actually being successful, let's say, uh, driving a Formula One car in Rio, was just the perfect weekend for someone who had gone through a through a hell of a lot, but had that inner strength to push themselves beyond beyond the normal limits of sort of being a human, because it was, it was just way beyond anything I can sort of explain. The pain was just so, so much, but it just proves that if you push yourself, you believe enough that you can, you can achieve. And I think by doing what I did, I did achieve. And I, I don't think we're gonna see anyone like me, probably thankfully in many respects, anyone like me again, <laughs> because though the safety things have changed, I don't think if anybody went through this, I think Robert maybe is something similar, slightly different scenario. I'd love to see it. I don't think we are uh, from what I can feel at the moment, but considering how battered I was, it was, if I say it in my own words, pretty impressive in many respects, but would it have been different? As I said, I think it would have been very, very different. Would I have been world champion? I believe I would have done. I think I was good enough before. Am I disappointed I didn't? Yes. But there's a re- for me there's a reason why it didn't quite work the way I wanted it to because everything from a, from a Lewis to a Senna to a Schumacher a Hill, a Lauder a Clark, Stewart all those greats that we've had um, it was pure natural ability. But once you're scarred your natural ability sort of vanishes, so I, f- I was sc- scarred, but fought and and
0: dug deep. And was it worth it? Did Formula One live up to expectations? You, the, the pain you put yourself through to get back there, to chase, keep chasing the dream, was it worth it? No.
1: Only joking. Uh, yeah, of course it was, of course it was, because it had been my dream since I was 10 years old and I was carting in Tilbury Docks. I wanted to be in Formula One and fight for race wins. Probably I didn't think of a world championship back then, but that sort of came when I got closer to it. And yeah, it was definitely worth it because, you know, I achieved those three wins. I finished fourth in a world championship, one year '95. You know, it was nice to have that sort of final win in, in, in Stewart as well. Something, you know, I, as historic as Jackie Stewart.
0: But I think what I meant by that, Johnny, is that from there on, there was going to be a sense of frustration surrounding your career as to what might have been. And sometimes is it overwhelming when you think what might have been and perhaps if I'd just walked away and people's memories of Johnny Herbert would be as the guy who could have won however many world championships and...
1: Yeah, um, you know, I still, I still get that now. I still hear about, you know, what could have been, if that hadn't happened, then it would have been a different person. I'm sure World Championships would have been there. As I said, we never know, sadly, but it's nice to have that still around. There are still even youngsters now and again, which surprises me that they're sort of aware of what happened, what I achieved and probably why I didn't achieve more because they're sort of aware of it. So it's nice, you know, you know, it was, well eighteen years ago, the last time I was in a racing in a Formula One car, and of course the accident was ten years before that so it was a lot it was a long time ago in a totally different different era of of when accidents did happen, sometimes there was um, not a nice outcome but it's nice that people still remember that and still sort of have this belief that if it hadn't happened, it, things would have been very very different and it's nice to still have that
0: and just and the final thing is your're obviously working now with Sky as a pundit. Are you enjoying that whole process of of talking about Formula One? Do you still enjoy being around the paddocks, talking to the drivers? Yeah. Does it in any way replace what came before?
1: Uh, It doesn't replace it for sure. Uh, I find it tougher than when i was driving because <laughs> it was it was an hour and a half of fun um and then you'd go home where this thing it just goes on all day and every day from a friday to a to a sunday so some
0: of your uh, opinions have got you into hot water as well do you remember yeah, when, sure. a couple of years ago when you told alonso he should retire or absolutely like <laughs> i was right eventually <laughs> <laughs> have you told him i was right no no
1: no saying, no we, we get on okay now which is great so yeah that's part of the enjoyment factor of it because I think the one thing the main thing I enjoy is watching what I see on track knowing how how um, edgy uh, drivers can be when it comes down to sort of that race craft know that when they're lying because we all have been in that situation we all know when we might stick our elbows out that little bit more and I like looking at that and talking about that.
0: And do you go easy on the drivers because you know you know that they know what you know and therefore do you find yourself just being a bit easier on them?
1: I'm not always. I think I'm as I said like, like the, you know, the Fernando thing. I just felt in the situation he was in. It's awful to see a guy like that with all that talent being wasted away. And you know, when he was on the radios, you know, saying these things about the the engine and everything else, you know, I thought well, that was not someone really in the right mindset personally, because I think that's not what we go out there to do. We go out there to go as fast as we possibly can. And I know he works in a in a in a different in a different way. He's very tough, very much wanting to push the team and the engine manufacturer to the very, very edge to try and sort of get him the best equipment that he can, which is what the centers of the world and Schumacher's of the world and all those those greats in the in the past have always been able able to do. And that's why I was sort of outspoken at at that point. And again, a bit like what we've had with the team orders. I'm not a fan of it. I don't think it's right. And I feel very sorry from the drivers, the sports perspective, where it should be left to the drivers to do the job that they're paid for and they show why they are the best. That's why they're in F1 because the team thinks they are the best. Well, if that's the case, let them do it themselves. Don't get involved. You know, I was never happy and I was very uncomfortable what we had in Abu Dhabi with Lewis and Nico, where Lewis was trying to back him up. They were telling him not to. He sort of went against it a bit, but then he sort of, you know, did sort of uh, not back him up. And I think that's something that should be sometimes said at the same time. A driver is, as I said, is sometimes in a lose-lose, which I think is very, very unfair. And when we're taking the risks.
0: Well, Johnny, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to catch up. I think after that last comment, you'll surely going have a cup of coffee at the same. Please, let's do that. <laughs> Johnny. No problem. Great to chat. Thank you and so you, much. thanks. What a star. What a fighter. What an inspiration. I don't know about you, but I just can't help but think what might have been had it not been for that terrifying accident that changed his life irreversibly. But Johnny isn't one to feel sorry for himself, and his positivity given everything is a lesson to us all. Thanks for your time, JH. I loved that chat. That's it for now, but of course we'll be back next week with another big name from F1. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Beyond the Grid. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and your favourite podcast app. And please keep getting in touch. We love your feedback. Robert dropped us a line on Twitter using the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid, telling us he listens to the show on his way to university. He also said he thinks I squeeze all the juice from the F1 stars. Well, Robert, I hope you found this week's episode suitable juicy beyond the grid is produced by f1 in association with audio boom until next time keep it flat out